So how many of you would say, whether you've been a Christian for a number of years or maybe even decades, or maybe you're brand new to church, that although you know a consistent prayer life with God is something you should be doing, actually doing it has been a struggle for you at times. How many of us? Let the record show a bulk of us. All right. And it's not necessarily that we don't know that we should pray. I think we know that. And I don't think it's necessarily that we don't know how to pray, but perhaps it's that we don't quite grasp the power in which prayer can have. And I think one of the problems with it is our culture looks down upon weakness and prayer is showing weakness. It's asking for help. And our culture is all about empowerment and you can do it on your own. You don't need anyone's help. But look what Jared Wilson from the Gospel Coalition says about this. He says, is prayer powerful? Yes, definitely. But specifically because the one being prayed to is powerful. The one doing the praying is in fact by his praying, demonstrating that he has no power in and of himself. That is functionally what prayer is, an expression of helplessness. If we were powerful, we wouldn't need to pray. And let me ask, do you consider yourself powerful enough to fix all of your problems and solve all the issues in your life? Anybody? Because if so, this is yours this morning. The scriptures actually say the opposite of what culture would say. They say that those who would confess that they are weak and are in need of help are actually the strongest amongst anyone because they are relying on the one who is truly strong and can truly help in times of need. And so this morning, I want to chat about the power and the purpose in prayer. And I want to do it in two different ways this morning. Uh, in one way, we're going to do it in a real pragmatic, practical, academic sense. And we're going to do that by looking at the, the early church in the book of Acts and seeing how they prayed and what they prayed for. So that might be a framework for us on what we should be praying for. But before we do that, I want to set things up by looking at prayer at a more theological level, through more theological lens, and seeing what the scriptures say about how we can commune with our Father. But before we do that, it would be such a disservice if I didn't pray before we talked about prayer. So let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this morning. We thank you so much for your cross and, and the finished work on the cross for us um, we just thank you that we can come in here this morning and anything that we're feeling guilty about or shameful about or being weighed down by, we can bring it to you and you can remove that from us. And so Jesus, I pray this morning specifically for anyone in here who is coming in hurting in a difficult season. I just pray for boldness for them this morning to just seek prayer and seek help and seek your face. And I just pray that you would come alongside them and really give us a great confidence in you today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I've broken down the prayers in the book of Acts into nine different categories of things they pray for. And we're going to look at that shortly. But while I'm speaking about other things, I, want, I encourage you all to be praying inwardly to the Holy Spirit and asking, what are some things that I should be praying into more than I am right now? And then at the end of the sermon, we're going to have an opportunity to do that. But before we get to the real practical aspects, I want to address some insights and honestly, tensions around prayer that you see when you get into scripture so that we can see the true power that prayer possesses and the purpose that it has in our walk with God. So let me show you what I mean here. Ephesians 1, we'll start in verse 3. It says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. 
even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So we read that before the foundation of the earth was laid, he chose those who believe to be holy and blameless before him because of Jesus Christ. So if you are chosen in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless, what role do you have in being holy and blameless? It's pretty simple. None. It was decided before you were even born. Let's keep going. Verse five. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. So this great mystery that before time began, God predestines us to be his adopted sons and daughters to present us as holy and blameless by no work of our own, but only through the work of Jesus Christ. Did we just hear that we had it made known to us or did God make it known to us? God made it known to us. We're the passive element here, okay? So what we're reading in Ephesians 1 and many other places in scriptures is that God is sovereign over all things, He works all things according to his will. And it's very clear in this text that salvation belongs to God and that he before the foundation of the earth was laid predestined his sons and daughters. And if that's true, if God has already determined who his sons and daughters would be, then why pray for people who don't believe in him? Like, why do I pray earnestly and often tearfully for people in my life who I love, hoping that God would reveal Jesus to their hearts. Why? All while knowing that he has already predetermined who was gonna believe in him long before the foundation of the world. In fact, it gets much more tense and complex than this if you get further into the scriptures. I'll give you a few examples. Proverbs 16.33 essentially says that the role of the dice, the outcome, has already been figured out by God. Proverbs 16.9 says the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Psalm 115 in talking about his sovereignness as well. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. You know, in Matthew, Jesus actually says in in chapter six that a bird flies or falls out of the sky by the word of God's mouth and that a flower blooms in the field or does not bloom in the field at the command of the sovereign God. See, it's the understanding of the original readers of this text, and it's our biblical understanding today that God is sovereign over everything, that he reigns and rules over everything, and he has a plan already in place for everything. And if this is true, and it is biblically true, why pray? If God has already decided, he's decided whether he's going to save certain people, whether he's going to do something or not do something, why does it matter if I pray or not? if the outcome God desires is going to happen anyways. Let me give you one more example, uh, a couple more, but one specifically about this tension that's created here. We know in the scriptures that God is portrayed as being clearly sovereign, but then God's people constantly ask him for things. They ask him for things personally. They ask him for things for others. They ask him to do things. They ask him not to do certain things. And here's the thing, God listens. Look with me at uh, Exodus 32, Exodus 32. So this is right after Moses led God's people out of slavery 
We'll pick it up in verse nine. It'll be on the screen as well. It says this, and the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. So what's happened here is God has just led his promised people out of slavery. He literally splits the Red Sea in half. They walk through it to freedom and mere moments later, they've taken all of the gold that they have, they've boiled it down and they've made a golden calf and then are worshiping that as God. And just a side note about this story, this isn't even what this sermon is about today, but something I've always found fascinating is that they make a calf? Like why not a lion, a bull, a wolf, something powerful? They choose to worship a calf. Like if you're going to worship something, don't you want it to give off some sort of awe or power or create a bit of fear and confidence in you? They choose to worship a calf, which just seems ridiculous And it makes me think that God in this moment is showing us just how ridiculous it is when we worship something other than him. And oftentimes within the brokenness of our lives, the things we worship instead of him can be really ridiculous. But that's not what the sermon's about. So God comes to Moses and he says, get behind a rock, go hide. I'm going to destroy everyone. And then I'll come back and I'll start over with you. He even tells Moses, don't try to talk me out of this. I'm the sovereign God. I've already made up my mind. I'm taking everyone out. I'm coming back and I'll start over with you. This is the command of the Lord. But watch what Moses does here. Verse 11. But Moses implored the Lord, his God, and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from this disaster. So God sovereignly says, Moses, go hide. I've made up my mind. I'm killing everyone. I'm sovereign over all things. This is my plan. But Moses implores him and says, don't do this. He begs, he prays, don't do this. And God listens and relents. So the sovereign God over all things, who sees all, knows all, the future, past and present aren't just places he knows about, but are places he is right now. God who's outside of time says, I'm going to destroy everyone when he knows full and well, he's not going to destroy everyone. See the tension there? Let me give you a few more examples here. James chapter four, verse two says, you desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Is it not an implication of this text that you don't have because you don't ask? Or how about Luke 11 verse nine says, and I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and the one who knocks, it will be opened. See, this is very much the inerrant word of God as the texts about his sovereignty are. It's just as much scripture. 
In fact, if you got into the full parable of Luke 11, and I recommend doing that sometime this week, you'll see that Jesus says, ask, but not just ask, persistently ask. He's basically saying, knock on my door all night long, bother me, pester me with your requests. And I think that's the easy part, but where some of us fall off the rails is he doesn't just say ask, but he says, ask and seek. So not only do we persistently ask, but we should be persistently seeking, putting action to our prayer. What are we seeking? Well, it's Jesus. It's getting to know Jesus. We're not just to pray and sit there and twiddle our thumbs and wait around for something to happen. We're to persistently ask and persistently seek, knocking on the door again and again. And and let me point out a few breakdowns in regards to the power of prayer and prayer in our lives and why maybe we don't see the full effects of the power of prayer. One of the first ones is persistently asking for things that have nothing to do with the kingdom of God like selfishly asking for things, revealing that our heart is seeking something other than God as of first importance. And when we don't care about who Jesus is or what the will of God is, this is how we pray. You know, we have no concern for the Lord, no concern for what he wants. This is what I want. I'm gonna pray for it. I'm gonna be frustrated when I don't get it. You know, with my limited view, with what I know, I know what I want. And I think this is a problem that hinders us really from seeing the power of prayer. And, and here's how I think it plays out again and again. Like some of us get stuck in the same cycles over and over. We pray something like, Lord, take this thing about me. Take this thing away from me. Do something here. I've been struggling with this sin for so long and I can't seem to shake it. And so we've prayed to God and we ask for his help to change our heart, but we do nothing in regards to seeking. You know, like we don't seek Jesus' face. We don't seek counseling. We don't have anyone being accountable in our lives. We don't have people come alongside us to pray for us. We fail to take any kind of active steps in regards to seeking. Like like maybe you're in a difficult relationship right now or you're in a difficult marriage right now and you're in a place where you've prayed. You're like, Jesus, please heal my marriage and make everything better. And you go to bed and you just hope the prayer fairy shows up and you wake up and you love each other so much. Like, You have to know there isn't any shame in seeking help. We already heard that when we are weak, we are at our most strong because Jesus is working in our weakness. It's what I would call active waiting on the Lord where we don't just sit on the sidelines. No, but we pray, make our heartfelt desires known to him. Then we get in the game and we allow God to work while we're seeking his face. And so we ask, we ask, we ask, but we also seek, seek, and seek. So let me ask you a question then. Is God sovereign over all things and does he have a plan already in place for all things? Or do we have the power to move him with our prayers? Yes. We have to believe that it's both. Biblically, it's true. Let me explain it this way. And this would be the easiest because we've already looked at Ephesians chapter one. Ephesians one was very clear that salvation belongs to God and that no man can be saved without Jesus opening his heart to understand that, right? It doesn't get any clearer than that. The only way you believe and have the ability to believe is if God opens your heart and mind to understand the gospel and get you out of the darkness and into the light. And so if that's true, 
then why preach? Like, what am I doing here? If preaching does not open the hearts and minds of people, but only the Holy Spirit does, why share your faith with your family members? Why share your faith with your friends? Why share your faith with your neighbors? Well, it's because, and the book of Romans tells us this, that God's appointed means to to achieving his purposes, to achieving Ephesians 1, is through the proclamation of the word. And so God says, the means by which I'm going to accomplish salvation is through the preaching and teaching and proclamation of the word. So I'm going to save men and women by preaching and teaching the Bible and through the interpersonal relationships that you all have with people where the gospel is taught and lived out. And so we preach because it's the means by which God is going to draw people to himself. The same is true about prayer. Prayer becomes the means by which the purposes of God are accomplished. So in this way, prayer has the power to change things. A couple more texts here before we get to Acts. Matthew 21 says, And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive it if you have faith. Notice that there's a little caveat here that would stop us from pretending to be Aladdin and praying to God, our genie in the sky, hoping for our little prayer wishes to come true. He says, if you pray and ask for anything, you'll receive it if you have faith. Now, that's not faith that the prayer would come true, but rather it's faith in the cross of Jesus Christ. It's a heart set on Jesus, which means that for prayer to be effective and powerful, we must have a heart that belongs to the Lord. Which means you're going to end up praying less and less selfishly and more and more in regards to the kingdom. Book of James has a great text in verse five. It says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him but let him ask in faith. Listen to what the Bible said for those who are believers. If you lack wisdom, ask and you'll get wisdom. That's amazing. Like, let me tell you how this might play out. Like, I know that I am to love my wife like Jesus Christ loved the church in that he gave himself up for her, right? Sounds good on the surface. But what does that look like practically day to day? And then what does that look like if she were to ever be wrong? Like, hypothetically. (laughs) Like, how do you lead your wife like Christ loved the church? So I think, like, the proper Christian answer to give here, which isn't wrong, I just don't think it's the best answer, is for me to say, well, there's a great book at the Welcome Center. It's got five ways to love your wife like Christ loved the church. But what the Bible says our response should be is to pray to God, God, give me wisdom. How do I love my wife like you love the church? Show me. And that prayer has the power to give it to you. And we know from the scriptures that he's not a wicked father. We know when we ask for something to eat, he's not going to give us a snake. So when we pray to him, God, what should I do? He's not going to be like, Figure it out. I don't know. I'll judge you on it later. No, he's a good, loving God who hears that prayer so we can confidently say, help me, lead me, guide me. It's a profound truth in the scriptures. And so with that in mind, that that God is sovereign over all things, but he is a loving God who was moved by the prayers of his people, I want us to look 
at how prayer was used specifically in the life of the early church in the book of Acts so that it might shape our hearts to know the power and purpose of prayer. Look, we already read that little caveat. If you have faith, ask and it will be given to you. These men and women in the book of Acts had more faith than we could possibly imagine. And so it's good for us to learn from them what powerful men and women of faith prayed for so we might know what we should be praying for. So I'm going to go more academic mode here and I'm going to go really quickly through nine different observations, nine different things that they pray for in the book of Acts. And like I mentioned at the top, as I go through these, I encourage you to be praying inwardly to the Holy Spirit and ask, which of these should I be praying into more than I am? And then we're going to have an opportunity to do that at the end of the sermon here. So here we go. We're going to go through nine things we see in the book of Acts. I'll tell you the point. I have a few verses and then we'll continue on. Number one, we pray as a part of corporate worship, right? We pray when we gather together in church. We pray when we gather in small groups and community groups, when we're sitting across the table from people, we pray as a form of worship. Let me show you just a few of these. In Acts 1, we see this happening. It says, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In Acts 6, they're actually in church when they're saying this, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So prayer is a part of what we do when we gather together. It worships God. And that makes sense, doesn't it? Like we're the people of God when we gather, should we not commune with God? Yeah. Number two, we pray for repentance and forgiveness. See, we, have, we as Christians, because of the finished work on the cross by Jesus Christ, we have the privilege of getting to run to him anytime, no matter what, no matter how messy we might be. And we can ask him through prayer for forgiveness and he will grant it to us and he will give us the power to repent from that. Look what Peter tells Simon in Acts chapter 8. He says, repent therefore of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. And in a few verses later, if you got into Acts 8, Simon actually asks Peter to pray for his forgiveness also. So it's, good, it's, good, it's a good example for us that when a brother or sister in Christ repents and is seeking forgiveness, we too should be praying for that brother or sister. It's not that our prayer brings the forgiveness, but through the power of prayer, we talk to our father in heaven about the condition of the heart and ask Jesus to transform it. Jesus demonstrates this when he's praying for Peter. We learned last week that Jesus is praying for each of us right now. Likewise, we too are to pray for the spiritual well-being of our brothers and sisters. Number three, we pray for wisdom in ministry. And this one's big. And, and if, you are, if you have some time that you set aside to prayer and your list is empty for whatever reason, man, at the Shore Church, we would love if you would just pray for us as a ministry. We just love for direction. How do we engage our city? How do we choose sermon series? How do we put together different classes and study groups? We would love prayer for this ministry. And that's something James is going to talk more about next Sunday. But we see all kinds of evidence of this in the book of Acts, of them praying for their ministries. Um, in Acts chapter one, they are replacing Judas among the 12. So they pray to God. They give it to God to give them wisdom of who to come into that place of ministry. In Acts 14, they pray for the new elders of their church. In Acts 13, they pray for the people of their church who are being sent off into mission. So we pray for wisdom in ministry. Um, number four, we pray for boldness and growth in mission. 
this one we need a lot of help in, right? Like even the thought kind of gives us, like makes us nervous about sharing our faith with our neighbors or our friends or our coworkers. We need Jesus' help in that. And here in Acts 4, we'll pick it up in the middle of a prayer while they are praying for this. It says, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So we pray for that boldness in our lives as well. Number five, we pray for miracles and healing. And for whatever reason, I feel like this one's really personal for us. And this is something that we need to be praying about. I don't know what you might be walking in here, but I think there's a lot of healing that needs to be done, whether it's physical healing, spiritual, emotional. We need to be a place that acts as like a hospital where people can come and be prayed for because healing is a real thing. It's a real thing that can happen. God might want to heal you today. And keep this in mind, when we go into our time of response, if, if you need healing for something, I encourage you to come forward and seek prayer from our prayer team. We see all kinds of examples in Acts. We actually see Peter praying for a girl named Tabitha who died and he prays for her and she raises from the dead. We see Paul praying for people constantly and healing multiple people from just deathly diseases and sicknesses. And so we gotta pray for healing. Number six, we pray for those in difficult seasons. We see this in Acts 12 when Peter's actually in prison, having a really hard time. At that very moment, the church is gathered together praying for their brother, Peter. Likewise, we should pray for one another when we are in difficult seasons. It's actually a pretty crazy story if you got into Acts 12 later. Um, the church is praying for Peter at the very moment they're praying for him. An angel of the Lord shows up, lifts Peter off the ground, opens up all of the prison cell doors, leads Peter out of prison and back to the church. Like pretty incredible. And so we got to likewise pray for one another in difficult seasons. Number seven, similarly, we pray in our difficult seasons. This should be the first thing we do. I know your mom's probably got good advice. Your spouse has good advice. Your friends have good advice. The first place we should turn is to God in this. And I will say, we talked about this a lot the last time I preached that when you pray to God in your difficult seasons, he might not get you out of that situation, but he will give you the power to get through that. That's made most evidence in Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane before he goes to the cross. He knows the brutal 18, 20 hours he's about to endure and he prays to God, if there's another way, can we not do it this way? But if it's your will, I will do it. God says, this is the way, but I'm gonna give you the strength to get through it. And so prayer doesn't always change your circumstances. It does change your heart to give you the power to get through difficulties. So pray in your difficult seasons. Number eight, pray for your enemies. Ooh, this one's tough. I think our instinct is to want to punch our enemies and not pray for our enemies, right? But we see an amazing example of this with Stephen as he's being killed. It says, and as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And so we pray for our enemies. And last, but definitely not least, we pray for salvation. We pray 
Ephesians 1, that God would open up people's hearts to know who he is. And we see this in, in Acts 4. It says, this Jesus, sorry, uh, yeah, Acts 4, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The apostles in Acts knew this. They knew that salvation came only through the death and resurrection of Jesus, but ultimately they knew that only God could do the work of opening up someone's heart to hearing who Jesus truly is. So they prayed constantly that God would do that. We see this made manifest in uh, Acts 16 for a woman named Lydia. It says, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. So we ought to pray like they did in Acts for God to open the hearts of many to see who he is. So there's nine things that we can be praying for. And something else, just as I, I start to transition us here, that we learn from the book of Acts is that it sets an important pattern for us when it comes to personal prayer. Like it's clear that the early Christians set aside deliberate time for prayer. And often I think we approach it as kind of a transitional thing or a way to start or finish something. But how often do we actually schedule time in? And I'm not even saying like wake up at 5 a.m. and pray for two hours because you might fall back asleep right away. But actually what we read in James 1 is, is good wisdom. James 1 says, pray for wisdom. So I encourage you to pray about your prayer life and how you can find time. Maybe 15 minutes at lunchtime, you go for a walk. 10 minutes before you go to bed. But pray about how you can find time in your life to commune with the God of the universe. It's a powerful tool we have right in front of us. So we should take full example of it. We see that Jesus does this all the time. He often withdrew to go and be with the Father. And honestly, if we want to experience powerful, transforming change. The invitation is right there and it's through prayer. And so I want to lead us now into a time of praying. It would be such a disservice to talk about this and not live this out. So um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to get those nine things back on the screen behind me. Um, the band's just going to play some instrumental music in the background and we're going to take eight to 10 minutes or so um, and just pray through whatever might be on your heart. And this is an example of what great men and women of faith prayed for. It's great. It's a great framework for what we can be praying for. And I, and I encourage you to do this however you feel led to. I'll, in your seat by yourself, gather together with a group. If you want prayer, man, we're going to have a prayer team down here. I'll be down here. I encourage you to come and receive prayer. And just know that it's not showing any kind of weakness, but it's showing the greatest strength of all, the strength of Jesus by being bold and coming forward to get prayer. And one other thing I want to encourage you with is maybe you've been praying something for a long time and you have doubts about whether God loves you or cares about you. If you ever think that, all I want you to do is remember the cross. If you ever doubt that Jesus loves you or you think he's abandoned you, remember what he did for you on the cross. He gave you the greatest gift of all when he went and died on your behalf so you might experience life with him. So yeah, we're going to head into a time of prayer. After a little while, the band will lead us in response through singing as well. And if you're not sure what to pray, we choose a lot of really biblically thick songs that you can also pray directly to the Father. We'll give him glory through those songs. And then once we start singing, I invite you to come and respond through taking communion. Take the bread, which represents Jesus' body that was broken for you. 
dip it in the wine or the juice, which represents his blood that was spilled for you. And remember Jesus' finished work and remember that he's a great God that we can run to in the time of need. And then of course, we'll be praying. And then if this is your home, if the shore is home, we ask you to give, you can do that at the Welcome Center or online. But if you're just visiting, please don't give. We're just so glad you're here. Let me pray for us and then we'll move into a time of corporate prayer. Uh, God, we just thank you for just the gift of prayer and that even this prayer right now is not in vain. You hear us, you listen to us. You want us to make our heartfelt desires known to us. God, I thank you for the confidence that we can have in you because of the finished work of Jesus. And Lord, I pray specifically for people in here who just need healing or are going through a difficult season, God, that you would just intervene in their lives in a powerful way. I pray for healing in a powerful way this morning. But if this is your will that they be in this, I pray that you would change their heart and strengthen their heart to get through this so that you might be glorified in it, God. I pray that we would become a people, a church that makes a habit of constantly communing with our Father in heaven. I just pray for wisdom for each of us of what that looks like practically. And I pray that you would lead us into an ever-increasing relationship with you through prayer, Lord. So I pray all these things in your great name. Amen.